Welcome back, everybody, to this week's episode of Fireside Politics. I'm Nick, and I'm joined by the ever squirrely Steve, the local corporate debonair. Excuse me, the the ever squirrely Steve? I had to come up with something, okay? I tried some alliteration, squirrely Steve, you know, I think it fits. You know, I'm coming in here to have a nice conversation with you. Share a couple of laughs. I'm immediately insulted. I'm a squirrel? I don't even know what to say to that. In any case, there's no response. It's the winner. Come out of hibernation. So, Steve, what do you want to talk about today? Oh, man. Always a lot of things on my mind. But I mean, the first thing, you know, did you see the debate last week from atop of your taxpayer funded throne? Oh, my God. How rude. I mean, I'll let it slide this time. But uh, as a matter of fact, I did see the debate. I mean, it was just a firing squad going at Bloomberg. But I mean, what, what did you want to focus on today? Oh my God. Well, I mean, the, the man of the hour, Bloomberg himself. I mean, there was so much attention on him last week. I figured, you know, why don't we, uh, why don't we spend a little bit of time this episode and uh, dive a little into Bloomberg? Dive away. Yeah. So I think this is going to be the, the beginning of a series that Nick and I have, have spoken about a little bit, a candidate spotlight series. It's been forced on me. Business is lobbied. It's been passed. I had no say in it. It's what the squirrels do, Nick. You've oh got, you, you said it yourself. But we really wanted to use this just to provide a spotlight into the the main candidates running in the 2020 presidential election, provide some background on who they are, you know, how they arrived at their policy and platform. But while getting into the politics, we really wanted to try to look at their their background to get a sense of their character and and you know how that informs their their policy certainly and just their careers and and you know why it is that they're running for president today. Yeah, absolutely, Steve. I think that's actually a big part of this. Uh, campaign is who is seen as authentic and trustworthy and who has, you know, been steady. I mean, part of Bernie's support is that he's been steady on the issues for, you know, 40 plus years. He really hasn't changed his talking points in any major way. He's consistent. And I think that means a lot to people to get that sense of authenticity and consistency. Oh, hundred percent. And I think, you know, do, you know, looking a little bit more into Bloomberg and, and not, not just to speak about him, I mean, we'll get to him later enough, but I think that is the theme here. I mean, it they, they all have very similar positions on, you know, the big issues. And at this point, you know, when you're trying to think about who am I going to vote for, it comes down, you know, one, I think, to who, who you relate to the most. But to your point, who comes off the most authentic? Who's the most genuine person on stage? Yeah, and I think character is a huge part of this. I mean, as as we look back through history, we we think of many, many ideas, you know. Oh, who, yeah. The big questions out there. Who should run our society? You know, what is it all about? Who should be in charge? And so if we look back to Plato's Republic, he has this idea of the guardians of society, the, the rulers, if you will. Oh, my God. And he, he has this to say. Um, he says, neither ought our guardians to be given to laughter for a fit of laughter, which has been indulged to excess, almost always, always produces a violent reaction. Nick, 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 Nick. Come on, right. what the hell is what the hell is Plato talking about? What does that mean? All right, so to break it down for you, in that book, The Republic, which is one of the biggest political theory books that kicked it all off, um, and people have been discussing, refuting, debating for centuries now. Um, I think that quote really gets to the fact that you know politics it's it's serious business, okay? And Bloomberg, my friend, he is not a funny man, and so I think he perfectly fits. <laughs> Plato's vision of who should run a society, you know, fitting this framework going back thousands of years. I think he's really impressive in that regard. 
Well, as much as I want to defend, you know, his his <laughs> lack of of humor, if you will. I mean, you know, on stage last week, weren't called about, you know, for making these these rude comments about women, to which he said, ah, you know, I made a couple of bad jokes over my career. They were bad jokes. So, they were very bad jokes. And the thing is, he he was so uncharismatic in the way he delivered that line that the the audience just was. booed him. Everyone was like, oh, you stink. That's so insensitive. It, you know, especially when you're standing for progressive or democratic causes, which part of it is, you know, a big part of it is feminism the empowerment of women and making that sort of comment. I mean, Trump can get away with it and own it, but Bloomberg, he's, he's not running as a Republican. He can't say that stuff. <laughs> oh, so it comes into parties. Well, I think it gets into, you know, <laughs> our, our guy versus your guy. Um, no, but, certainly. Yeah. I mean, so let's, let's talk about, let's, let's break him down. So his personal life, business career, mayoral career, the presidency, what's going on, Steve? Let's dive in. Yeah. Let's dive into Bloomberg. So kick it off, some basic information. You know, Bloomberg, he was born February 14th, 1942, Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, as he mentioned in the last debate, his his family was immigrants. Uh, his grandparents on his paternal side were Jewish immigrants from Russia, on his mother's side from Belarus. Uh, and his parents were, were working class citizens. Uh, his father was a bookkeeper for a dairy company. Um, I actually don't know what his mother did, but great research, really bringing it in at the start of the episode. But continue. I promise I'll kick things off. I'll show. I actually did my research this time. Okay, all right. But it would be so, a miracle. Yeah, he lived it. He lived it. Moved. It. <laughs> just continue. Just Never, continue. Oh, oh, always the comment with this guy. Always a comment. A fly on the wall. So he moved around Boston for, for most of his, his young life, uh, pursuing high school. And then eventually he went on to attend Johns Hopkins University, where he got a Bachelor's of Science in Electrical Engineering, graduating in 1964. Um, do you want to, by the way, do you, fun fact, do you know why he ended up being an electrical engineer? Uh, he started off no, as a physics major. He loved science. And then a couple, a couple days in, a couple of weeks in, uh, realized that at the time, um, German physicists really dominated the field. So he had to learn German in order to stay in the physics major. So he was like, fuck that. I'm going to do electrical engineering. <laughs> I want to fucking learn German. No way. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, that was just a fun fact. I, mean, I thought I'd throw it in. <laughs> no, I mean, it makes sense given his family ancestry. But... Oh, my God. You know, we're, it's, there you go. It's we're keep rolling. Keep rolling. All right, let's we'll keep rolling. Anyway, so he graduates in 1964, does a seemingly a 180, and then goes to Harvard, where he gets his MBA, graduating in 1966, which is sort of the the pivotal point for him, where he starts to focus on the on the business side of things, moving to New York and getting into Wall Street, where he he got a job at Solomon Brothers, which was a large Wall Street investment bank. Um, back in the 70s and 80s. And he worked his way up to partner, which he, he achieved in 1973, heading the equity trading and systems development branch of, of, the, of Solomon Brothers. Uh, interesting thing, which really kind of kicked off his career and, and the name that he has today, but uh, Solomon Brothers was bought in 1981 and they, lay, they, they laid off Bloomberg. Uh, $10 million, which, you know, I, I don't know how upset he was at that, but... Well, that wasn't... Of, part, you know, well, that wasn't... They didn't, like, give him... In those days, you didn't get some sort of package for getting fired. That was from the money that the stock 
the stock that he had in the company was liquidated and that's what he ended up using to start his company. You're right. True. Yeah. All right, yeah, Steve, that's why you know Oh my God. Anyway, continue. Fly continue. In the wall. Come on. Fly in the wall. This guy, this guy is always going to comment. Come on. <laughs> anyway, so he takes this $10 million liquidated stock, whatever you will, and he founded a company called Innovative Market Systems. Now, the IMS was developed around Bloomberg's belief that Wall Street would pay a premium for high quality business information, um, you know, delivered instantaneously and via a computer terminal in multitude of digestible formats that made it very accessible for traders and business analysts, um, not only on Wall Street, but throughout the whole business and financial world to really digest information quickly. So the IMS developed and sold these custom terminals. Um, and more specifically, you know, they de delivered real-time market data, aided in financial calculations, other analytics. Steve, um, look, I, I'm sure this is very interesting to someone with a business background, business mind, very big corporate fat cat like yourself. This is boring. I don't give a shit about how he started his company, okay? <laughs> Tell me about what the man's about, the substance of the matter. I mean, what did he actually do with this career? What impact did he have? Okay, well, you know, you know, the, well, uh, let me just go forward a little bit. So, flash forward to 1990, IMS, bad name, renamed Bloomberg. And at this time, they had sold 8,000 terminals. They were immensely successful. They founded Bloomberg News, Radio, Message, some other companies, 100 offices worldwide. Hmm. Really, the point that you know, kicked off Bloomberg's you know, career um, in that space and, and, and built his fortune, where he amassed you know, billions of dollars doing this. Um, and it really, you know, having been in New York, it gave him um, certainly the financial uh, means to to run, you know, eventually for mayor. But also, he started to have an invested interest in the city. Mm. Um, and eventually, you know, he decides that he's going to run for mayor. So in 2002, he retires from the company. Um, and at this time, he decides to fund his own campaign, which uh, is similar to what he's doing now. Right. Um, and actually, I thought an interesting statistic, uh, you know, in his first campaign was that he actually outspent the Democratic nominee. Um, he was running as a Republican in that race. Yeah, I, I should. I actually should but step I, back a little bit. But so, anyway, well, you know, Bloomberg one. politically, he always he always aligned more with with the Democrats. Although he did consider himself sort of a Republic liberal, but more progressive. But for the sake of this election, he didn't think that the Democrats were going to win. There was previously a Republican mayor, and at the time, the the Democratic Party had sort of been. Um, they were sort of ostracizing a lot of people. And to him, he thought that to win New York, he needed to run as a Republican, which he did. Uh, he beat Mark Green, who, like I mentioned, he had outspent him in terms of campaigning five to one and went on to become uh, the mayor of New York. And what did he do of as course, mayor, you know, Steve? What, what were his main strategies? What did he actually accomplish? You can't just throw money he, at a campaign and expect that something will actually happen with it. I mean, some I've, I've heard that people like him. What did he do? I'm not going to dive into all of his, of his platform, but some of the big points that I, I, I've noticed were he had a very uh, a vested interest in public education. He wanted to go ahead and kind of reform that. Um, and one of the things that he did through this is actually increase the uh, literary literacy rate uh, from New York. I think he brought it up, um, almost doubled it. Um, on the flip side, though, I think in terms of like math and sciences, n not so well, but, hmm. you know, sort of to his credit, he did, you know, help to kind of drive the New York public education system in a more positive direction. Yeah. And to um, speak to that, actually, as far as the progressive platform, I think that one thing that's often overlooked about just how I, I don't want to say innovative because it's given 
maybe it's giving too much credit, maybe it's not. But in, in any case, it actually, from my perspective, was very admirable that um, one of the major things that he took on was funding for public schools in New York City and how he made it so that I think this is around um, by the time it was like 2007, they had actually effectively changed it so that per capita, poor low income areas of New York City and also upper income areas of New York City were actually receiving the same level of funding per capita for schools hmm. and equalizing that funding gap, which we talked about a little in CSR part two, which I, I hope we release it soon. But um, I, I think Ooh, that coming. was a major actual like progressive reform that he did that he doesn't really give get credit for. Yeah. And, and I think kind of to that point about how he's allocating funds, you know, one of the big things he did too at the time there was New York City had a large budget deficit. Mm -hmm. So he he increased taxes um, sort of across the board and really helped to address that deficit. He himself took no salary as as mayor. He hey, he got a dollar, oh, okay? He got a dollar. Rating yeah, the, rating the um, fuck. I can't, I can't come up with the word. What do you end up calling it? It's not the treasury, dear Lord. Rating the treasury? No, it's not. All right. Okay. You're right. That was, let's, a bad, move, that was a, let's move past it. That was a terrible <laughs> attempt. I just didn't have it coming. I didn't have the words. Anyway, keep going. Nah, Save me from myself, the wall, Steve. This guy. Oh, man. Well, I guess, you know, before we get into We're some of the We're painting a rosy picture. Issue. I mean, what everyone's been well hold on hold on you know let's we'll, we'll dive into we'll get to the thorns but you know i think one of the things that people don't know you know he was he was pro-choice he actually favored legalizing same-sex marriage mm. which i think was for a mayor at the time especially in a city like new york was a pretty big thing to advocate for um one of the things which i know you you have studied and uh or read about rather, but would get a kick out of. He was he's an environmentalist, and he really was, you know, advocating for fighting climate change all the way back then. Hmm. Um, and, and you know, I think we'll touch on a little bit of what he's done around that. Happy to more recently, happy to. and 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 have that. But, but too many roses here. You know, Come on, everyone hates too this many Stevie's this big bag billionaire. What are what are the thorns? No, hey, Give them to me. Let's look at. All right. Well, we can't talk about Bloomberg without talking about stop and frisk. I mean, there was since. So what I will say is this policy was in place before Bloomberg did get into office. However, he did expand this policy, um, which did lead to sixfold increases actually in documented stops. Hmm. Um, and it, it was contentious at the time. The U.S. federal court themselves, they challenged the policy and they they did rule that this was a violation of citizens' rights under the Fourth Amendment. Um, but you know, Bloomberg, his administration did appeal this this ruling. Um, you know, on the on the argument that it did decrease you know crime in New York City, and I think you know Bloomberg even mentioned it during the last debate that it you know dropped the murder rate in half. I think um, whether I, you know it, that can be attributed directly to stop and frisk, I think is certainly a very contentious issue. But I, I think it's worth noting that there was a decrease in crime sort of coming into Bloomberg's tenure, and then it did follow him. You know, with Mill. Uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio after that, who who did actually um, you know, drop policy. Bloomberg's appeal, yeah. exactly, um, allowed the ruling to proceed forward. Um, and they did see that crime actually, even with this policy stopped, did did decrease after that. Right, so, which basically strips the argument that you needed it to reduce crime. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's interesting. You know, my 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 mother actually, she grew up in New York City during this time period, and she she you know talking to her about this, she thinks that it was a you know, admittedly, you know there were you know racial racial kind of tendencies obviously towards who they stopped but to her being a woman in the city during this era i mean i think she she mentioned that she was mugged and there was obviously a lot of situations where she felt unsafe 
So to her, you know, this policy did, you know, the reducing crime, you know, she looks at it a little bit more favorably than I think maybe people outside of New York, maybe women outside of New York who, you know, didn't live there during the 70s. But mm. um, again, I think it's hard to really measure the impact. And it, it, I guess, you know, you look at things, hard to look at it in black and white since the, the amount of good that it generated or came of it rather was is hard to measure. So, yeah, but. Does, I will does, say yeah. he made that the whole point of his um, mayoral campaign, though, and a lot of his initiatives, it's that you have to be data driven. And I think he's gotten in trouble for not framing things well, um, where he was saying, oh, well, you know, based on where we're seeing crime, we have to send more law enforcement individuals to these parts of the city, um, these parts being minority areas. And he was really saying you need to focus on those areas. But th again, the way he framed it um, Poor, poor choice of words. I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but it it did not did not go over well. Yeah, yeah, certainly not. I think it even really, you know, I guess that sort of I don't want to say mentality, but that data driven approach, or you know, I guess really kind of black and white approach, looking at things like you said, these kind of minority areas, and certainly seeing higher rates of crime there. But you know, if if we look at you know following nine eleven his administration actually implemented a uh, suspicionless domestic program that explicitly surveyed Muslim communities um, solely on the basis of religion, race, and language. And I mean, they had a special task force going out doing this, schools, bookstores, cafes. I mean, every single mosque in New York City was under this program. Um, and actually, all of those, all those things that I mentioned were within a 100-mile radius of the city were actually wow. surveyed. Um and I thought it was actually pretty cool. It was this program was was under wraps and it was exposed by the Associated Press ten years after nine eleven in two thousand eleven. Um, and you thought it was cool that it was exposed, or that it was going on? Well, I, th well I, I think it was cool because the fact that you know it was it happened, you know, following nine eleven, and for ten years this went on and it wasn't public knowledge. Um, and you know, how is that cool though? How is that a good thing? Don't you want more transparency no, no, and accountability from the government? No, no, no. You're, you're, yeah, yeah, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. That it's cool. I'm saying that it was cool that it was, ex you know, eventually it was exposed. And I think the fact that you know, hmm. um, you know, the, the Associated Press actually winning a Pulitzer Prize in journalism for this uh, led to its discontinuation in 2014. Oh, okay, I misunderstood so, I mean, you. Sorry about that. Yeah, 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 that. yeah you should be pounce. Smart. Sorry. Fucking most noisy fly I've ever seen oh, in the goddamn God. wall. But oh, buzz, man. buzz. Anyway. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, that was similar, I think, in stop and frisk in terms of its intent and sort of the, that black and white way of kind of approaching these issues. And, um, admittedly, I don't have any, you know, necessarily hard numbers on, on the rate of success behind that program, but I, I think it's hard to attribute that to, you know, any, you know, absence of terrorist, terroristic events following that. Um, and you know that really kind of coincided with the end of his his mayoral career, and I think that program in particular too did really sort of uh, lead to a lot of protests against Bloomberg as mayor. And um, I think I think he did end up leaving office on a more favorable note. But um, you know, as we've said, there are some sort of uh, you know Mars against his against his mayoral career. Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> moving forward, you know, he leaves mayor, you know, office as mayor. 2014 returns as CEO as Bloomberg, um, you know, does a stint there, and throughout that time, in 08, uh, 2012, and 2016, he he's considering running for president as he is now, um, more on the centrist uh, platform. 2016, he actually does endorse Hillary Clinton, um, primarily warning against the dangers of a Trump presidency. So you can see even back then he was against Trump, and 
I'll read a short quote because I think it really holds true to him today, certainly running. Um, and, and he said this while endorsing Hillary Clinton, you know, Trump wants you to believe that we can solve our biggest problems by deporting Mexicans and shutting out Muslims. Interesting that he says it like that. Uh, he wants you to believe that erecting trade barriers will bring back good jobs. And he's wrong on both counts. Um, then he also went on to say that Trump's you know, economic plans would make it harder for small businesses to compete uh, and would erode our influence in the world. Hmm. Yeah, that's, I think that's... I was, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I um, so back in 2007, he was giving a series of talks and throughout each of them, he's, he's very consistent that he thinks that anti-immigration policy in terms of criticizing George W. Bush's immigration policy at the time um, he heavily criticized it and he thought that it dissuaded people from coming here that we needed. Um, and that, you know, trying to under, this is not under Trump, by the way, this is under, you know, Bush Jr. That trying to deport 12 million people at the time, um, wasn't realistic and that, you know, it's disgraceful, it's abhorrent and we need people from all over the world to want to come to this country. Um, and so I think he's actually been consistent on that surprisingly. Yeah, and I think you know he mentions it in, in I think he mentioned it in the last debate, but you know his parents were were immigrants, um, and you know I think him him coming from this working class immigrant family and rising to the the business powerhouse that he was, you know, really is the the, the image of the American dream. Hmm. So I, I you know I think yeah, in line with what you said, he he does remain consistent on that front, and I think he is sort of you know the living sort of image of that, if you will. Um, but yeah, you, you know. Like we like we were saying, you know, he transitions into this presidential campaign, 2020. Here he is, Bloomberg, Bloomy, if you will. He's now running for president. Oh my goodness! Um, you Nick, know, what are some of the issues that he's talking about? I mean, we've touched on some of his stances on things during his mayoral career. Is there? Do we see any parallels between that and and the platform he's running today? So, as far as the platform today, anyone can Google that. Anyone can go to their website. We did the hard fact finding, the deep dive. I found this uh, 2007 talk that he gave at Google. Um, where he actually did speak about healthcare, and he actually, sim interestingly enough, back in 2007, had similar talking points to Bernie, where he was saying that we're the only Western country to spend, you know, 50% more on healthcare, um, and yet have life expectancy that's lower than a lot of European countries and a lot of countries where there is universal healthcare. And so, one of the big things that he focused on at that time was that, um, you know, at, at in 2007, 16% of the country did not have, this is pre-Obamacare, people did not, 16% did not have health care or health insurance. And at the baseline, we needed to get that passed. And so um, he gave this example also of the U.S. healthcare system being reactive as opposed to preventative-based care, where highlighting this is the idea that even though you know, once you get sick, your rate of recovery from, you know, open heart surgery going well is much higher in the United States. The likelihood of that surgery having to take place in the first place was much lower in Europe at the time. And that remains mm -hmm. true to today. Wow, that's interesting. So yeah, like you said, it's more, you know, preventative rather than, you know, affecting good lifestyle. And, Dude, a real Marianne Williamson in the making. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so we talked about immigration. We talked about that. Um, for foreign intervention, he actually was giving a speech at Bard College around that same time in the mid-2000s 
um, where a lot of the students showed up and wore, um, you know, on their cap and gown things saying that we should pull out of the Middle East. And during his address to the students, he actually said he he uh, took issue with it. He said, you know, we can't pull these troops all out at once. Um, and as far as intervention goes, he is, um, you know, notably actually he's in favor of foreign intervention so long as it's to prevent genocide um, and other things from happening. And, but at the same time, he also did espouse, you know, you guys, you kids got to respect the troops while they're out there. Um, and so it's, I think he's a little bit different from both Trump and Bernie and others in the sense that um, he actually is in favor of having more of a global presence. And in that sense, I would say he actually aligns pretty well with Hillary Clinton's platform in 2016, where um, her and John Kasich were a lot more pro-intervention than Trump and Bernie were. Hmm. Interesting. But uh, that aside, um, we've got we've got climate. I mean, that's always a big thing on the mind. Um, and oh, I man, think this, I know your favorite subject. I think climate ties into philanthropy a lot um, because one of the things that we heard at the last debate was him talking about how he's giving all of his money away, that he's donated a lot to climate. And an unlikely candidate for this is he's actually worked with Tom Steyer on that stage. Um, no way. I know, I know what, you like Steyer, and uh, yeah, Bloomberg and him, they go, they go back to 20, 2013, even before that. They launched something called the Risk Business Project with Hank Paulson, who was a former chairman and CEO of Goldman Sachs, also was the Treasury Secretary under George W. Bush. So big elite, <laughs> big, I don't know, it's a bunch of wealthy elites working on climate and sustainability, and so I feel like that sort of poses an identity crisis where it's, you know, oh, on the Democrat side, we care a lot about these issues, but we also care about the messenger in a sense and who's actually taking care of the issues. Is this people driven or is it, you know, top down, hierarchically, centrally imposed by these billionaire powers, which, you know, people for our generation, um, you know, this isn't the 1900s anymore. The people that are seen as making the world a worse place are no longer these centralized governments with a lot of power. It's oftentimes seen as these multinational corporations, and they sort of embodied that. However, that being said, um, you can't deny the fact that Bloomberg, I mean, prior to looking in this up, I, I had a different stance, but really Bloomberg has done more for climate than anyone else in the United States, bar none. He's effectively shut down the majority of the coal-fired power plants in this country, including some of the worst emitting ones, which um, could directly actually be tied to killing hundreds of people per year, causing hundreds of thousands of asthmatic attacks per year, um, really a hmm. public health crisis and nuisance. And so I think that sort of ties into just his whole um, idea of philanthropy. And I mean, maybe maybe that gets to guns a little. I know you did some research on that, Steve. Maybe that's a stretch of a, a handing off uh, the speaking there, but I feel like I've rambled on no. enough. Um, I actually have yeah, plenty well, more, but... Oh, this kid's, kid in his words. No, but you know, I, I've, every time and then I get these texts from this every town movement, hmm. you know, uh, gun advocates. Yeah, and, one of the biggest ones in the country. I think the biggest one. One of the biggest ones. Yeah, it is the biggest one. And I mean, for the longest time, I was like, you know, who the hell is this thing? And then it comes out that Oh, it's it's you know it was founded and, and is largely financed by Bloomberg. Um, you know they advocate for gun control. Um, you know advocate against gun violence. Um, 
and you know, they're like, like you said, Nick, you know, they're the biggest sort of gun advocacy group in the country. And I think that really speaks, you know, to Bloomberg's record. And I think it even speaks more so to his character that, you know, during the last debate, he's taught, you know, guns were an issue. And he was talking about how, you know, he was for stricter control and he really wanted to see a difference if he were president. Didn't mention that he founded this or financed this, this every time for gun safety. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, you know, he's kind of, you know, to your point, you know, we, we, you know, we, it's often, you know, we're villainizing or, you know, looking at these, these moguls, um, you know, who are throwing their money at the problem and not really doing much. But I think, you know, despite what he does in his philanthropic nature, you know, it's not about that. It's not about the money. It's not about throwing it at a problem. You know, he's sitting to the sidelines. He's creating these organizations. Sure, he's funding them with his money. Um, but, you know, money does, uh, you know, it does play a large part in these things. Um, and I think it really speaks to his character and to his stance on these things that he's willing to, you know, put so much of what he's made into these initiatives mm-hmm. and then, you know, not showboat them and say, oh, I'm, I'm doing X, Y, and Z. You know, it, it's more sort of the unspoken things that he's done. Yeah, which um, I think that's hard for him in this race to actually come through and say, look at all the things I've done where that doesn't come across as much in his speaking engagements that you can listen to. And part of reading, I went ahead and read um, a 2017 book that he co-authored with um, Carl Pope, who was the former head of the Sierra Club for a very long time. Um, And Bloomberg and Pope actually partnered on shutting down a lot of these coal-fired power plants and how, you know, prior to Bloomberg getting in the game, the Sierra Club didn't really have uh, the capital to go ahead and challenge a lot of these things. It was more of, you know, one-offs. And the partnership with Bloomberg and others actually enabled them to make a lot more of a concerted effort to go ahead and get this done. Now, that being said, he's not squeaky clean in the sense that um, another thing that Democrats um, are sort of split on here and you can see this in terms of Joe Biden, uh, Amy Klobuchar, and Bloomberg, where um, some see natural gas as a bridge fuel um, for the climate uh, problem, uh, but others, such as Bernie, Warren, and others, see it as um, you know us actually being deadlocked into that infrastructure, that natural gas infrastructure, and just further delaying um, a transition to renewables. Now, Bloomberg is also in favor of coal or not in favor of coal, in favor of nuclear. And I think, you know, taking that nuance of, okay, Bloomberg is opposed to coal, fire generation, and fossil fuels in general, but also wants to phase out natural gas over a set period, you know, over a longer stretch of time than Bloomberg, sorry, not Bloomberg, than Bernie or Warren. I think that's going to be a point of division, actually, between Bloomberg and Bernie on that stage at some point over climate change and who is the better record versus you know, pure ideology, what do you want to end up doing in the next 10 years? Or who has the better, the grander vision, I suppose. Right. Well, I think it really comes down to his his approach. And, you know, um, I, I know there's a, a quote somewhere, but I think, you know, the essence of it is that he's more driven, you know, it, you know, a president, a leader, they don't need to have all the answers. You know, his approach is, you know, you have someone who who knows how to put pe- people in place who have the knowledge to address these issues, someone who has a strong sense of leadership who can direct these people. Um, you know, and sort of tied together, not so much with sort of fanatical, you know, policy or or whatever you will, but, you know, by, so to speak, analytics, you know, really looking at the facts and, and you know, having a very accountable and metric driven way of leadership. Um, and I think that's sort of what his, his focus is. And to his point, you know, we can't just dump these things and, you know, turn them off tomorrow. You know, there does need to be a period where we phase them out. It is the infrastructure, you know, so many jobs 
whether we, you know, uh, attribute it to an IR based on this thing. And, and, you know, our whole economy is sort of dependent on these fossil fuels. So it's not as easy as just pulling the plug and saying, you know, we're going green tomorrow. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I, I yeah, continue. Uh, I was going to say, speaking of fossil fuels. So um, one of the things that actually shines through in terms of Bloomberg's character is that he hates, he absolutely hates being dependent on other people for approval. So there was a story of him when he was mayor of New York, he was working on a congestion pricing scheme. Um, which was actually very popular in New York City that people wanted, which was, you know, at during peak congestion hours where the city's packed full of cars, you end up charging them more for all of that pollution that's going on in the city and for shutting down essentially that, you know, economic engine of people being able to efficiently get in and get out of the city. Um, and he was going to then use that funding for more public transportation. And what ended up happening was that the New York State Legislature uh, which actually has to end up ratifying that, um, they wouldn't even have a hearing on it. They didn't even, you know, broach it in any serious way. And that really pissed him off. And it comes across very clearly in both his writing and his speaking engagements that he absolutely hates being dependent on other people. And so I think he's in a unique position where just as a personality, because he has so much money, he doesn't have to be dependent on people. But by God, I think he gets a little frustrated with the checks and balances system that's going on in this country. And in that way, I have to say he's a little bit like Trump in my mind, just on that on that issue. Yeah, I mean, that that's true. I mean, one thing that comes to mind is prior to his termship in mayor, you know, New York City mayors were only allowed to have two consecutive terms of four years. And during his second term, he knew he wanted to run again. So he actually worked to change that and implement a three-term policy Supreme with four years Bloomberg. and i mean granted he actually um i forget the exact body but there was a new york um i guess it was the new york council new york city council actually did ratify that mm -hmm. and they put it into place and that still holds today three terms of uh you know of mayor but yeah to your point i mean he he wanted it in in sort of a similar you know trump way he went ahead and he he made it happen despite the checks and balances he you know, on the flip side, though, saying that, you know, you look at it, he changed the system to him. It, you know, like, as you could say, it worked out in his favor, but he was someone who was willing to look around and cut out the bureaucracy and, you know, and really drive this change. Mm. So good and bad, you know, the thorn with the flowers and the, <laughs> the thorns. But I think, you know, we can, uh, you can look at these things in both ways. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say, as far as looking at it from different ways, um, we all can look and see how poorly he did on the debate stage. I think he might surprise us oh, man. Uh, the next time around. But um, one of the things he said from that talk at Google in 2007 is that, and this is when he wasn't running, although there were a lot of suspicions that he would. Um, fun fact from that, actually, is that he called <laughs> during that same talk, he said, quote, creationists are uneducated <laughs> and said that, you know, STEM is so important <laughs> in this country and we've got all these dumb people. We need science and medicine and you know, all this education. So I thought that was a bit of an interesting thing. You don't often hear sound bites of people calling an entire religious part of the country, a religious block of the voter based uneducated idiots. Um, <laughs> but in any event, so looking to the future, um, he actually said this back, you know, in 2007, he said that debates have nothing to do with your ability to do the job of president. It just shows who memorized their notes and whether the team made the right talking points, anticipating things from other, other candidates. And, I, you know, Steve, I think he's really challenged this or channeled this uh, through his first poor debate performance. It was very clear that he put no stock in it. He put no effort. Uh, but I think he might surprise us tomorrow because if it's one thing he hates, 
It's people telling him that he can't do something. Well, Nick, I guess we'll just have to uh, tune in tomorrow and see if he, he does, in fact, surprise us.